Uh, yet another week has passed where we have seen fighting in the political arena, maybe to no surprise, fighting amongst family and friends, fighting in the streets, fighting online, fighting everywhere we turn. And all the while, I've been asking myself, what are we fighting for? And is it worth it? There are as many answers to those questions as there are uh, people hearing this. What are we fighting for, some ask. We're fighting to make America great again. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for equality, fighting oppression, racism, sexism. What are we fighting for? We're fighting the outdated, restrictive, conservative agenda. No, no, no. We're fighting the sin-soaked liberalization of society. No, no, no. We're fighting the multinational, multi-billion dollar corporations for manipulating resources and countries and governments for the bottom line of their shareholders' profit. Is it worth it? Well, again... Uh, depends who you ask. Certain folks probably here fall in each of those camps, and they're willing to pay the associated cost of the fight. What about you? What about me? What about us? And who is us anyway? Well, let me clarify my terms here. The us that I'd like to speak to this morning and for the next few weeks are believers in Jesus. In the most general sense, Uh, the church. But before I say more about that, I want to speak to those of you who uh, disbelieve or don't yet believe. We're thankful that you're here with us this morning, Um, or if you're tuning in to the City Church app or podcast, we're thankful that you're there with us. Uh, I do want to clarify for your sake that I'm completely confident that you will benefit from uh, this series, even if you don't believe or you don't believe yet. Um, If you're not benefited and you make me out to be a liar, uh, just come holler at me at the end of the service and I'll make good uh, towards you. We can go out and get a drink or a meal and it's going to be on you. So back to the church. Back to the church. Uh, The church certainly includes in a micro sense city church. But it isn't limited to our micro church or any specific micro church. The church extends to the macro church. To those of you visiting us this morning who have other church homes, who believe in the Lord Jesus but uh, don't call city your home, or the believers listening online, even the believers who oppose church in this form, in this fashion, which a lot of people my age do, uh, you're still part of the macro eternal church. So this is for you. That said, again, I ask, what are we fighting for and is it worth it? I think you'll be surprised to hear that the Bible addresses these very present and these very pressing questions. So if you would turn with me uh, in the Bible to the letter uh, or the book of Jude, uh, it's towards the end of your New Testament. If you just flip to the end, there's Revelations and it's right before Revelation. Now, what we're going to discover in Jude is what I've entitled this sermon series. Namely, we're going to discover something worth fighting for. For those of you who are new, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor. Um, And on behalf of everyone who calls City Church Home, we want to welcome you and thank you for being here with us this morning. Uh, I say this often, and I'll say it again, and this won't be the last time that you hear me say this. Uh, We as a church are better and more because of you choosing to make City your home church. There are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. 
And often you don't find out how imperfect a church is immediately. It takes time, just like people, uh, to discover the imperfections, like finding warts on your boyfriend's feet, or discovering that marriage didn't change that really annoying habit of your now husband. Frankly, that's what church is like, a discovery, a constant, continual discovery of human imperfection. So if you're new to City Church or considering making City your home church, I want you to anticipate that. So when you experience imperfections, you don't break up with us to your detriment and to our detriment. And if you've long called City your home church and you're growing weary of the imperfections, I want to encourage you. There are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. But we uniquely amongst all people on this earth have hope because the Lord Jesus has lived the perfect life that none of us could, died the sinner's death that all of us should, and he did so for us, his bride, the local church, the body of believers, micro and macro. Uh, So our experience with one another can be about his perfection and not our imperfections. Amen? And I'm not even preaching yet. Okay. Now, I trust you found your way to the letter of Jude. Uh, If you will, I want to ask for your continued patience as I try to build a little bit of context context before we begin reading. I was talking to my wife this week, and I'm just fascinated that week by week, uh, people come to church. Obviously, I'm one of them. Yet, week by week passes, and most people, and I'm not styling on you, I'm not necessarily mad at you for this, don't open up the Bible. They don't read the scriptures for themselves. They don't investigate. So I always feel the need to build a little bit of context before we return uh, to the scripture. So a few things about Jude before we dig in. Jude is an epistle like Galatians or Ephesians, for instance. An epistle is a letter from a church leader to a body of believers, usually a specific body of believers. So Uh, That's true of Jude, but Jude is different than, say, Galatians or Ephesians because Galatians was written to the micro-church in Galatia. Likewise, Ephesians was written to the micro-church in Ephesus, whereas Jude was not written to a micro-church, but written to the macro-church, all Christians. Specific epistles like Galatians and Ephesians address specific issues with specific micro-church bodies. Jude addresses a very specific issue, but he addresses it for the entire church body, for all believers. One that pertains to the macro-church. So, Jude is equally applicable to the macro-church today as it was then. Are you with me? Does that make sense? All right, word up. And you can feel free to do that uh, as we proceed. Give me a head nod. Uh, You can hoot. You can holler. You can say amen. Whatever makes you comfortable, it helps me to know that you're with me. So as we consider today's text, I'm organizing my sermon uh, with three phrases. And watch how these all work together. Here are my three phrases. Sincere warmth, subversive war, and serious warning. You guys like that? Is that pretty good? Okay, so see if you can discern where those phrases come into play as I read through what we're going to deal with today. And then we'll deal sort of piece by piece with each of those phrases. Jude 1, beginning at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. 
mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And obviously, as we end that, that doesn't feel like sincere warmth. So I want to go back to the beginning of the letter here and look at the sincere warmth that we discover in verse 1, which reads, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude, in his introduction, identified two important things about himself. One, that he is a servant of Jesus, and two, that he is a brother of of James. And now, this is the James that we know a couple of things about. James was an important church leader, and he was also the author of the book of James. But notably, James was Jesus' half-brother, which we read way back in the beginning of our Mark series that we just finished last Sunday. Can I get a man that we finished that? All right. Way back in the beginning of that series in Mark 6, we read that Jesus was teaching in his hometown. Mark's account says that many heard him and were amazed, but others grumbled and tried to disqualify Jesus. And they said, hold on a second, I know this dude. Isn't that the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? James was Jesus' half-brother, which highlights that Jude left out an important detail if Jude is James' brother, then Jude is also Jesus' brother. Again, that's found in that aforementioned verse there in Mark 6. Mary's son, brother of James, Joseph, Judas. Judas, there he is. Or for short, Jude, as to not be confused with Judas Iscariot, the infamous traitor. Maybe Jude kept silent because this fact was inferred by his audience. Maybe he was a celebrity of sorts among the macro church, among the countless men and women who had come to believe in his brother, Jesus, after the resurrection. Or maybe Jude wasn't interested in claiming notoriety, instead taking the path of humility, realizing that although he grew up in the same house with Jesus, for a long time he was as far away from Jesus as those who did not know him. Which is a timely reminder that you're no closer to Jesus by your proximity to church than to those who never darken these doors. And you're no closer to Jesus by the ballot you cast, the political party or position that you take, 
the article you post or the tweet you retweet. I'm no closer to Jesus by preaching. Our musicians are no closer to Jesus by singing than someone who knows him not. Jude is an ever-present reminder that you can grow up in Jesus' house and share a bedroom or a bunk bed, as it were, with Jesus and be as blind, deaf, and dull to the reality of who he is as those who have never heard his name. Speaking of heard, as we see in verse 1, Jude at some point, like those to whom he's writing, found himself called. The word is called. Beloved in God the Father, and as J.B. Phillips translates, kept in the faith by Jesus Christ. Called and kept. Two foundational truths for all of the church to realize and to cherish and to defend and to protect. That God calls, God takes initiative, God seeks, and God saves. As another church leader once wrote in his own epistle to a church that was in Rome, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Romans 3.11 in reference to Psalm 53. Maybe you're here this morning thinking uh, that you're seeking God, thinking that you're in pursuit of God. If that's the case, I'd like for you to know, in fact, that you're not seeking God. God is seeking you. God calls. He calls the self-righteous who think that they're near to him by proxy of religious activity. He calls the self-assured who think they have no need for him. He calls the self-deceived who think that God is nonsense. God calls. To those who answer his call, he keeps. He keeps. This is a fascinating example of the intersection between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That while God calls everyone, he does not force himself upon anyone. And I kind of got emotional there when we were singing uh, that amazing grace song. And I'm going to try to not do it right now. I might get loose here. I'm going to try to hold it together. Uh, Do you ever think, Christian, who you were before today? who you were before the call of God came to your life. We can get into the routine of the ebb and flow of Christianity coming to church. Do you remember that you were lost, that you were far from God, and that sometime, in some set of circumstances, you heard his call? Take a breath. Don't cry. God calls everyone. He does not force himself upon anyone, on anyone. And in that way, God is a gentleman, a romantic who woos and loves and allures men and women to himself, but never forces himself upon anyone. Which begs the question, this morning, do you sense the call of God? Even now, as we're gathered just with a fraction of his people, singing his praises, pondering his word, God is calling, if you hear him, answer. When you answer the call of God by believing in the Lord Jesus, you are kept eternally secure in the salvation that Christ offers by the work that Christ has completed in his perfect life, his propitiatory death, his powerful resurrection, his promised return. And because of these nearly unfathomable realities, Jude writes with sincere warmth, which we continue to see in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. In passing, we can't authentically want for others what we have not found and experienced for ourselves. 
Does that make sense? Which forces the question to be asked of the church today. Christian, supposed follower of Jesus, do you desire mercy, peace, and love for others? Do you exhibit that in your conduct and in your conversation toward others? And really, that's not a question like that you can just ask of yourself uh, in the bathroom when you're looking in the mirror. It's a question that you need to ask of the people who are in your life. And if the answer is no, I have to ask, have you authentically found and experienced the abundant mercy, peace, and love of God in Jesus? Or have you just been sharing a bedroom, a bunk bed, as it were, with him for all of these years? The Christian community should be marked by mercy, peace, and love. And in the wake of this presidential election, as I read and heard the belligerent, boastful, belittling, biting comments of so many Christians who supposedly represent the cause of Christ in government and education and culture, I have to ask myself, does the church of Jesus look and feel and sound like mercy, peace, and love to the world? Or are we indistinguishable from those who are in the world without God and without hope? If we are, that's a shame. And it's a slap in the face of the glorious gospel of grace. Verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Again, sincere warmth. This is exactly where we discover the heartbeat of Jude's letter. The cornerstone of why he was compelled to write all Christians. The universal implication for the macro church, including our micro church. And the application for every man or woman that calls on the name of Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Another illustration of Jude's sincere warmth is that he wrote, get this, not about what he wanted to write about, but about what they needed him to write about. Do you have a friend like that? Someone who cares for you enough to tell you what you need to hear. Do you have a friend like that? Maybe not what they would like to say or what you would like to hear, but what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. All of us need to hear things from time to time, right? Or am I the only one? Not all of us are lucky enough to have friends like Jude who had the courage to speak up. And when Jude takes courage and speaks up, he has one thing that he knows the church needs to hear. Contend for the faith. Does that seem anticlimactic? Not sexy enough in our age of rioting and boycotting, protesting and crusading for countless causes. Contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Contend doesn't really capture the heart or the spirit of the Greek that was used here. The phrase is contend earnestly. And this is the only place that we find this word in all of the New Testament. Contend earnestly has athletic flavor to it. Probably doesn't taste like athletics. You get that's like a, that's a slang word, athletic flavor. It's got athletic flavor to it. It has, um, I'm sorry, military flavor to it. 
Contend earnestly as a seasoned athlete in a championship match. Contend earnestly as a trained soldier in the height of combat. You'll notice that Jude doesn't say contend for faith. What Jude says is contend for the faith. And that's a, that's a noteworthy distinction. Contend for faith is a very uh, modern notion that we have. This idea that belief for belief's sake is valuable or sufficient. You'll notice that Jude doesn't say contend for faith. And you hear this notion all the time. Man, it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you believe in something. You believe it works for you. I believe it works for me. All roads lead to Rome and consequently God as well. Faith for faith's sake is pointless. It's empty. It's a waste of your time and your energy and your emotion. Faith for faith's sake is pointless. I pause there because I don't, I don't know if this is going to start a fight, uh, but we are talking about something worth fighting for. I, I was in a meeting this week with uh, fellow Christians, uh, people about my age, um, and one of the Christians made a comment in observing people of, of various faiths getting together and attempting to do God's will, even though they don't agree on who God is. And I heard that, and I just kind of let it ride. That's what you got to do a lot of time with things that you don't agree with. Oh, they want to get together and do God's will, even though they don't agree about who God is. And I came back later on, and I said, look, trying to do God's will when you don't agree who God is, is like trying to get to a destination and taking different directions. It's not possible. But that's the notion that we carry nowadays, that faith for faith's sake or belief for belief's sake is valuable. And it's not. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of attention. There's nothing in it. Jude was talking about something very different than faith. Jude is referring to the faith once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. The faith is the body of knowledge of who God is, his person, his traits, his characteristics, his heart, his desires, what he's done for men and women, which reached its culmination in the person and work of the God-man Jesus of Nazareth. The faith is the complete revelation of God, that God from all of eternity has revealed himself to men and women as creator in and throughout creation personally to Adam and Eve in their rebellion, their sin. They destroyed and interrupted what he was doing. Then throughout history, the story of the Old Testament tells us that God was redeeming what had been destroyed, pursuing a people, revealing himself to men and women through the prophets and miracles, through the commands and the law that he gave to Israel. Then as we move forward into time, the New Testament tells us that God sends his Messiah, the one long foretold by the prophets, longed for by the people of Israel. And Colossians 1.15 tells us that this Messiah, this Savior, this Jesus is Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. Colossians goes on to tell us that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. A lot of you guys know, my wife and I just had a daughter. We sit around a lot and we say, who does she look like? 
She looks a little bit like you, a little bit like me. When she's at that angle, I see that. Oh, I hope she looks more like my wife than me. But what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is the fullness of who God is, that God was pleased to have his entirety dwell in Jesus. Not that God finds a little piece of him here and there at the right angle, the right thing, that Jesus is the full, visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus is the apex and the fulfillment of God's revealing himself to mankind. Specifically, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. But instead, he counts them against his son, the crucified Christ, as he was nailed to an old Roman execution device. Jesus resurrects, defeats death, appoints the apostles, creates the church, sends the Holy Spirit to indwell anyone who believes in this good news contained for us in full in our Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, the faith is the complete revelation of God in whom Jesus is the apex and fulfillment, which was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Holy, not meaning perfect, Holy meaning set apart. As I mentioned earlier, there's no perfect church because there are no perfect people. Yet and still, God still calls those who believe holy because we're set apart. Why would Jude ever write this letter to a church? This all seems like church 101, doesn't it? Why would he tell them to contend for the faith? Well, we'll see the answer as we move forward into verse 4 under the second heading, uh, Subversive War. And as a brief word of encouragement, I'm not going to spend as much time in the second and third heading as I did the first. I made it be cold in here on purpose so I could keep you guys awake, so I hope that you notice that. The second heading, Subversive War. There at verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Again, we're wise to take heed of Jude's letter. What's true then is true now. Certain individuals, ungodly people, have slipped in among us. In a moment, we'll see how these ungodly people behave And what these ungodly people believe, but I have to take a side note first. I realized as I wrote this sermon how unpopular the notion is that someone could be called and classified ungodly. That infers that someone could be called and classified godly. Unpopular because who are we, man? Who am I? in our postmodern, post-truth, consequently post-Christian society, to suggest that there's an objective standard by which men and women are measured and determined by way of their individual identity. The notion that individual identity is not about personal feelings or subjective determination is so unpopular that opposition has crept into the mind and the heart of the church. I wonder how many of you who identify as a disciple of Jesus even now are pushing back on or completely disagree with what I'm saying. Come on, Sean. People aren't born in any certain, specific, defined manner. People get to decide who they are, what they are, how they are, if they are. And God loves them all the while and all the same. 
Let me give a direct illustration. Every day, men say that they're women. Every day, women say that they're men. In doing so, they they say their subjective experience and feelings overrules and invalidates their objective sex. And look, I'm cut from the generational cloth where this became widespread and accepted and celebrated. So I get it, man. I understand the tension in navigating political correctness and personal freedom and relativism and seeking to allow people to be who they are and yet still love them in truth. But the modern Christian acceptance or allowance of this notion that identity is subjective is just one example of countless that proves that there is a subversive war happening all around us. Ultimately, a war to undermine the power and authority of the revelation of God, who he is, who he's designed us to be, who he says we are what he's done for us, what he offers us in Christ, in time, and in all of eternity. A subversive war is waged and is raging against the revelation of who God is, the reliability, the sufficiency, the inerrancy of scripture, and doctrine that's been developed in the church over thousands of years. And as I look at the state of the church, I wonder if the war is getting the best of many of us. All right, that's the end of my side note. Let's return to how these ungodly people behave and what these ungodly people believe. As Jude clarifies, the subversive war is centered in behavior and belief. And we'll put it up on the slide here. Behavior in perverting the grace of God into a license for immorality. Belief denying that Jesus Christ is our only sovereign and Lord. Strong's Concordance unpacks this phrase, a license for immorality. And here's what it says. Unbridled lust excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. Do you get the picture of what's going on here? These ungodly people have used and extorted and manipulated and perverted the very grace of God as permission to indulge in what the grace of God saves from. Let me clarify my terms again. Mercy is forgiveness, not holding your debt to your account. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace not only meets the requirements of mercy, not holding your debt to your account, but coming out of its own pocket, grace pays the debt and then goes back into its pocket and brings out immensely more than your debt ever was, completely independent of your request, your response, or your reaction, and grace gives you. All of that immensity. These ungodly people experience that exact exchange. And in the face of that grace, these ungodly people take the sum total of that gift and they use it to finance the cost of wickedness. That's their behavior, which follows as a byproduct of their belief simply stated, they do not believe. The ungodly deny that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord, God in the flesh, who reigns and who rules. But again, this behavior and belief are tools and tactics in a subversive war, which is indicated in how the ungodly enter. They secretly slip in. Secretly they slip in. The bottom line was true in Jude's day, and it's true in ours that the ungodly are slipping in secretly, quietly, 
if they came in here and said, yo, Jesus isn't the Christ. The church is a bunch of nonsense, and the Bible was just made up by men over a bunch of years. We wouldn't say, oh, brother, come on in. It's good seeing you. Welcome to the fellowship. We may accept them and love them, but we would challenge those ideas. It's not bold. It's subversive, a subversive war. Which leads us to my third and final point, the serious warning. Our third uh, and final phrase. Verse 5, 6, and 7, which is heavy hitting. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, there he has kept them in darkness bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. This is going to be brief. The Israelites experienced the miraculous, devastating plagues that resulted in their liberation from Egypt. They experienced that personally. They were personally guided by God, led by Moses on dry land through the Red Sea. Yet and still, some of them didn't believe. And that led to their destruction. Angels existing in the very presence of God, yet some rebel against God, which results in their imprisonment bound with everlasting chains, awaiting judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, even visited by angels, continued in their disbelief and their rebellion. And Jude proclaims that they serve as an example to us today, that we would consider their course of behavior and belief and escape temporal and eternal punishment. Which brings the question to mind, how is such an escape even possible? I'll answer that, but in closing, I have to make two crucial clarifications. One, uh, this is not a fire and brimstone sermon, okay? The reality of judgment for disbelief and sin rings throughout the whole of the Bible record. And you are done a disservice if you're never confronted with the discomfort of that reality. This is not a fire and brimstone sermon. Two, this is not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps sermon. In no way, shape, or form am I telling you to dust yourself off and be a better person and somehow try harder. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Even if you want to, apart from Christ, your best attempts at righteousness are seen as filthy rags. Back to the question, how is this possible? Look to the cross. On the cross, we see God's long-promised long-awaited, long-suffering Christ, Messiah, Savior, suffering the consequences, the judgment, the wrath for all disobedience so that any man or woman who hears the call of God, do you hear the call of God and believes in Jesus is kept for all of eternity. Jesus is the true and upright, bold and faithful Lamb of God who was sent to take away the sin of the world in whom mercy, peace, and love are yours and mine forever and in abundance. Church, again, I ask you, what are we fighting for? And is it worth it? So much time and energy and emotion has been spent on this presidential election. And don't get me wrong, I understand full well that the gospel is inherently political because the gospel is the declaration that a king has come. In fact, the king of all kings. He died for his subjects. He called them into his kingdom where they will co-heir, ruling and reigning with him 
for all of eternity in the only kingdom that lasts forever. That's political, all right? I get it. But simultaneously, Jesus on the eve of his death said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were me, my mans, we would have fought, but it's not of this world. Are we fighting for that kingdom? Fighting the fight of Jesus to call men and women of every nation, tribe, people, tongue, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, persuasion into that kingdom? Are we fighting, grappling, wrestling, contending for the faith? All the other fights are worthless. They're for kingdoms that will pass. They're for kings whose knee will bow and whose crowns will be taken off at the foot of Jesus, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, our only Lord and Master. With this, I close. For many, it's easy to divorce a letter like Jude from its historical context. In doing so, we think that Jude and really the entirety of the Bible really doesn't have anything to do with reality. I mean, the real world as it really is. Many scholars place uh, the writing of Jude during the time of the emperor Nero. Here's how Nero treated Christians. He captured them, gathered them up, and threw them into the Colosseum, and they were torn apart by wild animals for game and festivity to sell tickets. That's how Nero treated Christians. Here's how Nero treated Christians. He gathered them up, captured them, imprisoned them, uh, tied them up, dipped them in tar, lit them on fire, impaled them on posts as light in his garden. You're telling me that Jude couldn't have talked about the politics of his day in this letter? Here's my conviction. He was convinced that the kingship of Christ was eternal, that the kingdom of Christ was eternal, and that the politics of his day paled in comparison to the kingship and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In 2,000 years, in 2,000 years, if the Lord tarries, will Christians be gathered and look back to America in 2016 and say they fought for something that matters. It's up to us. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, ultimately I am thankful that you fought to the end of your life with the price of your life as innocent, pure, blameless, righteous, without fault, with no reason to be crucified. You fought to the end of your life giving your life up. You, the king, you, the king with the eternal kingdom, you fought and you gave your life for me, for us, for the micro church, for the macro church, for all those who now hear the call of God and respond. And for those, if you tarry, you hear it and respond in the future. We're thankful for your fight. Uh, Lord, I want to align myself uh, and fight for something that is worth fighting for, namely your kingship and your kingdom. That's in your precious name we pray. Amen.